It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be able to share from God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 6, so why don't you flip there while we uh, just remind you that uh, there's always an opportunity to serve. Um, I want to thank Ellie for being in with the kids this morning in the nursery, and some people have signed up to help out with the nursery. We thank you for that. Um, There's background checks happening for those. But if you're looking for a a place to serve, we had different greeters this morning. We have have, uh, more workers signing up for the nursery. We're just so grateful for a church body that gets involved and and serves. Feel free to reach out to any of the ministry coordinators or one of the elders, and we'll be glad to get you plugged in to ministry here at NCF. One of the things that I really appreciated about City Life is I got to go there as well and see what God was doing in in their church family and see the way that their uh, people interact with each other. And I honestly miss those guys a lot. They're just a a great group of the men and women that um, they're serving in a city area, a little different than serving in a rural area, right? Like they get on the metro to go everywhere. They jump on a little train, go 10 minutes down the tracks we have to get in our car and drive everywhere, right? It's, it's 40 minutes to everything, and that's 40 miles up here. Unless there's a deer in the road, it takes you a minute longer. So it's just a totally different culture, but they're doing the same thing for God's kingdom, and I appreciate that. Um, but we know that uh, no matter what church we're talking about, whether we're talking about North Country Fellowship Church or City Life Church, or some of you have come from other church families, um, and you're kind of like marooned up here in upstate New York as part of the army and you're trying to find the new church family, whatever that situation is, I think we can all agree that there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? I mean, how many of you agree with that statement? I mean, absolutely, right? The church is made up of people like you and me, and we're not perfect. So therefore, the church can't be perfect. So look at the person next to you and just remind them that they're not perfect. Go ahead, permission this morning. Pastor said to do it. You can tell them they're not perfect. You can tell them that right back to their face if you want. Some of you are like, I am not falling for it. It's a trap. It seems so far, though, that this church in Acts has had everything just go right. I mean, everything is going great for them. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. They're, they're all united, and they have everything in common. They're hanging out. You can just picture them sitting in the upper room, holding hands, singing kumbaya together, right? Just, everything is good, or so it seems. You know, okay, yeah, so a couple of them were flogged, kind of like whipped, but they also had an angel show up and bail them out of prison, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. And even though they got whipped and even though they were told not to preach, they continue to be able to preach. And nobody's going to stop them. They're standing in the temple on the outside of the, of the main temple area on Solomon's Colonnade on this huge porch area of the steps. And they're teaching about Jesus to thousands of people and nobody's going to stop them. I mean, wow. The church really seems unstoppable at this point, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be cool to be a part of a church like that? Wow. Well, actually, Jesus told Peter that this is exactly the way it would play out. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, you are Petras, you are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The the church is an unstoppable force because the spirit of God has filled the people of God to take the word of God out to the people who need to hear it. And God's kingdom will be built. And no external force, no gate of hell, no attack of the enemy is going to keep the church from doing what God has determined would happen. No outside force. 
So it seems like everything's good. I mean, yes, there's some opposition, those Sadducees guys, you know, they're, they're coming in and kind of messing up with them, but we've been learning in the Acts study, what, that the doors of opportunity swing on hinges of opposition. The doors of opportunity swing on hinges of opposition. And so the opposition is just creating more and more opportunity for them to take the gospel to people. Um, so, you know, we've kind of learned that if you're going to live for Jesus in an overt way, if you're going to let people know that you're a Jesus follower, you should probably expect some opposition. You might not be the most popular guy at work or the most popular woman in the office, right? It's just, it may not be that way. You can expect opposition. Jesus said in John 16, that you will have suffering in this world, but take heart or be courageous because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. We can accept opposition and know that even opposition can open up opportunities for good things for God's kingdom. So expect it. Don't be afraid of it. But when you face opposition from outside, it's, it's a little bit easier to handle, I think, because they don't know you. They don't know us. They don't know North Country Fellowship Church. They, they're not a part of this family. So if they say something about us, if they oppose us, they just don't know. I would say that the wounds that cut the deepest are probably the ones that come from those that are closest to us. Wouldn't you agree? When you get hurt by someone in your family, that hurts a lot more than when you get hurt by just somebody that's walking down the street that says something mean to you. Because the people that know you the most have the ability to hurt you the most because they're on the inside. Facing opposition from outside is one thing, and it's easier to kind of shield ourselves from that. But what happens when there's conflict? What happens when there's turmoil inside the walls of the church in our family? Then what do we do? Well, we've actually seen some of that. Uh, the first passage we experienced this with, David took us through, and it was Ananias and Sapphira. So people were selling off all that they had, right? So some were selling off pieces of land. And this one guy that we learned about, Barnabas, he sold off his property and he took all the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He said, here, use this for God's work. And then there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sold the property, kept half the money, and then Ananias approached Peter and said, here, this is everything we sold the property for. Now he could have said it's half, and it would have been okay. But he says, no, this is everything we got. And Peter said, are you sure it's everything you got? Oh, yeah, it's everything we got. And he drops dead, and they carry him out, and they bury him. And then a little bit later, his wife comes in. And Peter's like, um, so is this how much you got for the land? Is this the full amount? And she's like, oh, yeah. Uh, you shouldn't have conspired with your husband. And she drops dead, and they carry her out. And the whole church is like, whoa. The first time there's opposition in the church, it was an attack on the integrity of the church body. It was willful deception inside the church. And it was met with quite an opposing force by God's spirit. He took them out. We don't see that happen often, and I thank God for that, because probably none of us would be here, right? Because we all make mistakes and we all do things, not even on purpose, um, against God. But that was an attack on the inside for the integrity of the church body. And if the church is going to be the, the tool, the temple that takes God's message to the people around them, where people find out who God is and learn about his heart. There cannot be a deception between us and God and between us and each other. 
So that one had to hurt a lot because everything was going great and then this happens and now we've got this first problem. That was the first problem they face. This morning we're going to look at another problem that's an internal conflict inside the church body, but it's a little more innocent and I like it. It's a little less dramatic that nobody dies in this one. And so I like it a lot more. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. There's a little interlude here of a problem in the church, but not necessarily a purposeful offense, an oversight. Did you know it's possible for churches to not get everything right unintentionally? And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 6. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the CSB. And in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to do this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, isn't that Timon? Is that like Timon? Like, Tim, anyway, um, Parmenas and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So we have the second conflict that takes place um, in the book of Acts, in, in this early church. And we're introduced to it that during that time, or during this time, the time that the number of disciples were increasing. In Acts 5.42, it said that they met every day in the temple and in various homes. They continued teaching and proclaiming the good news. In Acts 2 and, and, verse, and chapters 3, we see they were meeting together. So during this time, it's a, it's a fuzzy phrase. It's not like today or yesterday. It's like, well, while all this other stuff was happening, this other thing took place. It's a fuzzy time. So while the church was growing in those days, something happened. There was complaining from inside the church family. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, most of that probably seems a little bit off to you and me. Um, like, who are these people, and what's this complaint, and how does that even relate to our century now, where we, where we live? Um, but the first church had, had some issues, and it was a complaint again that the apostles eventually heard. And I want us to look at these parts. I want us to look at first at the two parties. There's two groups mentioned here. Can anybody tell me who those two groups are? What's that? The Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews, right? So what are those? The Hellenistic Jews were predominantly Greek-speaking Jews. So many of them probably lived outside of Jerusalem and were here for the feast. Remember, this all started with Pentecost, which is one of those feasts where everybody travels to Jerusalem. So they were living in more of the, the Greek regions, and they were, their primary language was Greek. The Hebraic Jews, what do you think they spoke? No, Aramaic. 
<laughs> it's a trick question. Aramaic. And this was a language that was um, from the, it was from the Near East, and it was in the region from about 600 BC up through the first century uh, AD, and was the common language among the, uh, the disciples and among Jesus. And some of the New Testament is written in Aramaic. So you have Greek and you have Aramaic. You have two different languages. Um, they don't describe like an ethnic group. Like Con Connor shared with us about City Life Church and how they have all these different ethnicities and different continents. These were all Jews. They're one people group, but they had two different languages. They had two different ways of communicating, and that really wasn't the issue. The issue was that there's something else going on to one group versus the other. Um, now, at NCF, we, we kind of have something like this, right? We have local families, and we have military families. We're all U.S. citizens, right? We're all residing in New York State, so some of you have residences outside of New York State. You're, this is temporarily your home. There's no animosity between these two groups that I know of, just like there was no animosity between um, the, the Hellenistic and the, the Hebraic um, Jews. But there's a language barrier. You know, up here we have different slangs that we use. We have different um, ways of saying words. Like, it's, did you ever notice it's not elementary? It's elementary. Oh, it, it, that threw me off. Um, it's not a library, it's a library. No, a library is a berry that doesn't tell the truth, but it, up here it's a library, not a library. They, they have different ways of talking, they use different phrases and terms. And then there's the military who speak acronym, which is a whole different language that nobody else understands, right? Like they start talking and they'll just say blah, 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 and you're like, what, what does that mean? And you have to stop and get the translation of the acronym so you can follow along. So we have different ways of speaking. We talk about different things. Um, if, if I'm in the local community and I talk about my job, I talk about one thing, and if I talk about going to the next position, it might be a supervisor or this or that. If I'm in the military, there's all these different ranks, and nobody really knows outside of the military what those ranks are, unless they studied history and those types of things. So we have different languages, we have different experiences, but we're still one family and one group. So if we were to try to take this situation in the Book of Acts and put it in North Country Fellowship Church, it'd be like saying, the whole church was together, and there were these two groups, the, the local and the military, that came together, and one group was complaining against the other group that their people were not being taken care of well. Well, that could be a pretty serious problem, couldn't it? That's a pretty, pretty major issue. Um, so they came from different regions, had different languages. That would naturally make them kind of distinct even if they're part of one church family. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, so what was the real problem? The Greek speakers were complaining that the Aramaic speakers, to the, to the Aramaic speakers, that their widows were not getting enough support. So the outside group that had come into Jerusalem was saying, listen, every day there's supplies and food that go out to the widows, and those that are from this area, they're getting extra support. They're getting the support that they're supposed to, but, but our widows, we're not getting all the support that we're supposed to be getting, that, that we need. Okay. So one group felt like they were not being given the same level of concern. When our church was smaller, um, I remember Sundays where, well, when we first started, it was, you know, like 14 people and seven of them were the pastor and his family, you know. But then as we grew to and, and doubled in size to 30, um, 35, 40, 
we said we really need to be reaching out to our community. So I remember we did some mailings and we did some sermon series on marriage and stuff to try to um, find people in the community that maybe were hurting and, and would benefit from hearing the good news um, in light of uh, messages that would fit their context. So we did mailings and, and we had people coming out to the service that hadn't come out before. And we, over a period of time, as they kept coming, some of them gave their lives to the Lord and they wanted to be baptized. And it took a lot of energy to meet with these people and to help them with their situation. Some of them were coming because we were focusing on marriage. Some of them were coming because they were having some marriage struggles. And so there was meetings to, to help them with those situations. And I remember when we planned a baptism and a celebration for some that had come to know the Lord, there was a group of people who had been with the church for years, suffered through storefronts and all sorts of awful situations to get to this building. And all of a sudden, they were feeling like their needs weren't being met because all the time of the leadership was being spent with the new people. And a complaint arose to the leaders that those that had been here weren't being taken care of as well as those that were new and just coming in. These are very real situations. And it wasn't that in leadership that we didn't care about the people who had been here. It's kind of like that whole squeaky wheel thing. You guys know what I'm talking about? You take care of the biggest need, you bandage the biggest wound. And if the people that have been here for five or 10 years didn't have big wounds, they didn't get a lot of time because other people were, were struggling and hurting. So I remember when those complaints came and it realized every growing church, every church that doesn't remain stagnant or decay will face a situation where they're trying to adapt to the needs of their growth and inadvertently it's possible that they might miss somebody or one or a group of people's needs it's a very real problem but it's an unintentional problem that's one of the things i want us to realize as we look at this we were told in acts 434 that they had everything in common and nobody had any needs and now here we are just a couple chapters later chapter and a half later and it's like oh all of a sudden there's a group that has needs so we can see that this utopia that they had didn't last very long uh, it wasn't very long before all of a sudden now there's, they don't know what to do. Um, there's too many people. So a few things I want us to notice about this situation. First of all, it was expected that the church would provide for the needs of the, of the widows. Did you catch that? It was just expected that the church would provide for the needs of the widows, especially those that did not have any family or that could not take care of themselves. Um, this is actually a beautiful reflection of God's heart. And I think it's something that we often lose sight of as church families today, taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. And that can look like a lot of different things. Um, it's not just widows and orphans, especially in today's culture. That could have to deal with those that are struggling and um, that are caught up in things like human trafficking. It could be dealing with um, un unborn children who are being um, taken out in mass numbers. Uh, taking care of those that cannot take care of themselves is a very important aspect of the heart of God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says this, verse 28 and 29. This was a command, very practical command to the nation Israel. At the end of every three years, bring a tenth of your produce for that year and store it in your city gates. And then the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied and Yahweh your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And you find this command at least a half a dozen times in the Old Testament in different formats 
that you're to take and provide for those that can't provide for themselves. There's many Old Testament passages about it. Um, perhaps you're familiar with the, the story of, the, of Ruth. Have you ever read the book of Ruth? Well, Ruth was a widow and so was her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's a really sad story because they leave as families, go into Egypt, and all the husbands die. So now there's just like three women left to take care of themselves in a society that wouldn't let them take care of themselves. So they were forced to beg, much like the beggar we just read about not too long ago in the book of Acts. The book of Ruth is a beautiful picture of Ruth, the, mother, the daughter-in-law of, of Naomi, going out in the fields That's an active Sunday school class, or an earthquake. So it's a story of Ruth going out in the fields to pick grain to provide for her mother-in-law, um, which is it's just a beautiful picture. And they relied on the generosity of a farmer named Boaz to do that. So apparently taking care of the needs of widows um, is not only a big thing, it's going to become such a big thing that later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is going to give instructions because it's getting out of hand. The, the problem with being generous is that unfortunately in every society there will always be people who will take advantage of that generosity, right? Well, that happens even in churches, unfortunately. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, I'm going to read a little bit more than what you have on your screen here, but Paul has to help this young pastor, Timothy, with some advice on how to handle the situation. He said, listen, support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. Okay, all you children listen to this, right? Um, the widow who is truly in need and left alone has, no, has um, put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she um, who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So command this also that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows for when they, when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they, they will want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, also learn, uh, at the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house, not only idle, but gossips and busybodies saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman ha um, has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. So apparently it became such a need in their culture, and you can read a lot of their culture in that passage, can't you? It became such a need in their culture that they had to put some guidelines on it. Like, just because somebody's a widow doesn't mean we have to take care of them. Their family should take care of them first. And so they go through this process. But it was assumed that if you're a follower of God at all, and especially if you're a follower of Jesus now, that you will take care of those who can't take care of themselves. So first, there's that expectation um, in the book of Acts. The second thing you notice about this book of Acts is that the apostles are the last ones to know about it. 
right? So this is grumbling going on. Hey, we're, our widows are not being overlooked. The ones who were grumbling took it to the other group, not to the apostles. So the one group was taking it to the other group, and there's this conflict in the body, and somehow it eventually got up to the apostles. The apostles were the last ones to know about it. Um, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I know you probably know about this, <laughs> but usually I don't. I just want to, be, I want to be totally honest with you. Whether it's at work or whether it's here at the church, usually the elders are the last ones to know if there's a problem. Don't assume that leadership automatically knows everything that's going on in a, in a church family and in a church body. And that's why I appreciate what took place in Acts chapter 6. Because eventually they made it up to the, to the leadership to say, hey, we have a situation we need to take care of. And you can't take care of situations if you don't know about them. Um, it's often assumed that leadership knows everything, but more often than not, the opposite is true. So that's the situation. The widows are being overlooked. They weren't getting the care that God had told them the, the, the people of God, to provide for them. So the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Now, you notice in Deuteronomy, they were to bring everything into the storehouses. That was the temple, and it would be the temple that would be distributing. The church is now taking the, the role and responsibility of the temple. That's controversial, just so that you know. They're sidestepping the whole religious order that's there. They're not just saying, well, the temple takes care of the widows. We don't need to. They're stepping it up, and they're providing for the people that God has placed in their care. And I think that's just a super important thing. Just a, great, uh, just a great testimony of what they were doing. So what's the assessment? So the next thing we have to do is say, well, what, what are they going to do about it? So the 12 summoned together the whole company of disciples. And we don't know how many that is at this point. We knew that there were at least 120 disciples at one point, right? Really, there were 120. Um, don't let the rumbling fool you. We don't know if there's more or less at this time. Um, and they said this to, to the disciples, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So immediately there is a desire to meet the needs and the apostles validated the need that was there. They didn't say, ah, uh, it's probably not true. So no, this is a real need and we need to meet the needs. However, it was something the apostles said they should not be doing. It's not that they were above it. And I want to be clear on that. Jesus said, whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom must become the least. Whoever wants to become great must become servant of all. It's not that they as disciples were looking for a way out of a task they didn't want to do. Like I might try to do to get out of nursery. Me and diapers just don't jive. But they had a different function. They had a different calling from God. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that great commission, Jesus told his disciples, the apostles now, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Go and make disciples. They had a ministry from Jesus after his resurrection of taking the word of God out to the people. If serving food and distributing goods to the widows would keep them from doing what God has called them to do, it would be a mistake. And I think it's very easy for us to get sidetracked, sometimes doing things that are very good, but not the very things that God would want us individually to do. And sometimes we'll even say, well, there's nobody else to do it, so I'll do it anyway. Um, I had one person in the church at one time that was serving as a deacon because nobody else would. 
and they shouldn't have been. It's the only deacon I've ever fired. And what made it even more awkward is it was my dad, you know? <laughs> it's like, Dad, I love you, but you shouldn't be deaking. You, you're not a deacon. He says, no, but I did it because somebody, nobody else would do it, and that was the wrong reason. I said, you're right, but what has God called you to do? Well, obviously, God had called him to be teaching God's word and not deaking, <laughs> right? So he had, to, he had to be real about what God had called him to do. It's not that serving widows either is any lesser of a ministry. You have to understand that in the kingdom economy, every ministry, no matter how small or how great, carries equal value because it's all for God's kingdom and it's all for God's body. It's not that, that teaching and preaching is some great thing above cleaning or above... Any. No. Visiting someone in the hospital is just as significant as leading a youth group or watching kids in the nursery or greeting somebody at the door or playing an instrument on Sunday morning. Anything that we're doing for the praise and glory of God and the building up of his kingdom is valuable. So it wasn't like the apostles were saying, that's beneath us, we shouldn't be doing that. It's that they were understanding that they had a, a ministry already given to them that they had to focus on. If you're ever struggling with the idea that, that what God want, might want you to do doesn't seem significant, um, realize that Jesus washed the, the disciples' feet. And then just read Matthew 25. There's this parable called the sheep and the goats where Jesus said that people are going to be separated in two groups. Read through the things that he says people did in his name that he considered important. It was clothing people and feeding people and giving people water and visiting people. Not grandiose public ministries, but caring for people the way God cares for people. And I think it's a valuable lesson for all of us that all ministry is important. There will also always be more ministry in every church that, than any one church can accomplish. However, each of us has a ministry to do. The seven men that were called out in this situation had an important ministry to do. The, the apostles had an important ministry to do. You know that the greatest contribution... Um, Sometimes it's just saying yes to, I think Laura went in a study once that said say yes to your best. In other words, realizing that you can't say yes to everything, but say yes to the things that you know God wants you to do and focus on those things. But we sometimes have a hard time saying no, don't we? Especially when you care about people. When you care about people and you know that somebody's needs are not being met, it's hard to say that I can't. But sometimes that's necessary. So what's the solution? They meet together and they say, listen, guys, um, they call all the disciples together, the, the 12 do, and they say, it's not right that we should leave this that God has burdened us with, this task that God has given us of sharing his word. So what are we going to do about it? So here's their, here's their solution. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, and they go through the names. Stephen is important, and Stephen's singled out here because you're going to meet Stephen um, pretty, pretty soon. Um, this guy's not going to last very long in his ministry, but he's going to have a tremendous impact. Um, so it's unclear uh, why the number seven was selected, by the way. Uh, so we just don't know why seven. Why not 12, you know, like the apostles? Just seven. They picked seven. Um, and... 
I want you to realize the solution did not start with a program. The solution started with people. It wasn't, let's form a committee, let's figure out how to handle this. It was, find seven people that we can appoint to take care of this. The solution to the problems and the challenges of, in the kingdom of God is people. Now, people may choose to enact programs, but it starts with people. Always starts with people. The solution was not for the leadership to do more, but for the leadership to release people and encourage people for ministry. And a healthy church has everyone serving in some form of ministry or another, as their gifts and abilities allow. Some of you may have encountered... um, what my dad used to refer to as hired hand syndrome. If you know what hired hand syndrome is, HHS, hired hand syndrome, HHS, is, it's a sickness where the people of the church have the mindset that if there's a need in the church, the pastor has to take care of it because after all, that's what we're paying you for, pastor. Have you ever heard those words? That's a horrible thing. I call it a syndrome because it really is. It's a disease. And it will infect the church and destroy your church. I'm so glad that we don't have that mindset at NCF. Thank you so much for being like really understanding about the fact that it's not about just the pastors doing things. It's about the whole body doing things. The cure for HHS is humility and a theology that understands something we've talked about before in a previous message. And that is that it's the ordinary people of God equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God that can accomplish the mission of God. It's every one of us that God wants to use to build his kingdom. Every one of us. The needs of the church body are met when all the people of God are using their abilities to serve others. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So at this first internal, or the second internal crisis uh, of the early church, the first one that was um, not such a blatant rebellion, but an oversight, the apostles demonstrated the need for the entire church body to be involved in, in ministry. So they picked seven men. Now there's two qualifications for these seven men. What are those qualifications? Do you remember? They need to have two things, good reputation, what's that? And full of the spirit and wisdom, right? So good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. And you might be thinking, listen, they're just distributing food and supplies. What's up with such a heavy qualification, right? You just, just distribution, every ministry, Every service that's done for the kingdom is significant. We just covered that. It's all important. And anyone who's going to serve in any leadership capacity or ministry capacity should understand that they are representing the name. We've talked about the name, haven't we? You're representing the name. We're image bearers. And all that we do and how we lead and how we live, it all affects the kingdom of God, which is why we looked at Proverbs 22.1. It says, a good reputation, choose a good reputation over great riches, Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. To be of good reputation is important for anyone who serves in ministry. 
And that does not mean that you're able to make everybody happy. That's not what a good reputation means. Because you will never make everybody happy, right? <laughs> Anybody who's a parent knows that. You will not make everybody happy. But being a good, of a good reputation, I think, means starting in our homes. Let me just get very blunt with us here. Um, it's easy to have a good reputation with people that you see on occasion because you can put on any facade that you want and they'll believe it. But do you have a good reputation with your parents as much as is possible? I know some parents can be impossible, but do you have a good reputation with your parents? Do you have good reputation with your children? Not do you bend to their whims and give them what they want and are they happy with you all the time? but do you have a good reputation, a good name with them? Do you have a good reputation with your spouse? If the answer is sometimes, <laughs> or not as much as I should, then I suggest we start by humbling ourselves and starting there. Working through those relationships, relying on the spirit to teach us how to love and how to serve at home. If I don't have a good reputation in my home and in my work and in my community, I won't have a good reputation in my church family either, which means I'm not going to be representing the name of God well. So start with your home. Now, full of the Spirit means that they're already believers, that they have the Spirit of God living in them, and that they are submitting to the Spirit's leadership. Uh, Paul talks in Galatians chapter 5 about this thing called the fruit of the Spirit. Any of you ever hear about that? Fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the things that the Spirit produces in our lives. Oops, not sure what happened there. There it is. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, and the law is not against such things. Do you think that those characteristics would come in handy when working with widows? Mm -hmm. They come in handy when working with your children and your parents and your spouses and your families as well. When walking into an already aggravated situation where there's one group that feels like they've been slighted by another group, this fruit is so important. So these qualifications of making sure these people are respected by the people around them, and also following the lead of the Holy Spirit is super important in every ministry. If we're going to be totally honest, as we've been trying to do here, we'll admit that we don't always get it right, right? I don't always live the way that I should in my family. I, I will let them down at times. I, I don't always follow God's leading. Sometimes I'm stubborn. I, maybe you guys aren't. Maybe you guys have this down pat and you have no problem following God 100% of the time. I'm part of the two by four club. You know what I'm talking about? When God needs to get your attention and he tries over and over again, finally he has to like pop you upside the head with a two by four to get your attention. Oh, now I can listen to God. Maybe you're stubborn like that. I blame it on my Italian upbringing, but I really can't do that either. It's just me. It's my sin nature. Um, you know, we all struggle with this some, but we should be striving to live out um, a life that's of good reputation and that's following the spirit of God. So they present these guys to the, the seven men. They present them to the apostles. And the apostles did two things with them. 
what did they do? They laid hands on them, and they prayed for them. Now, laying hands on them was a common practice. It's not like a magical power transference. It's not like Elijah getting the cloak of Elijah or something like that. It wasn't one of those deals. But it was an acknowledgement of, I am passing on the authority for you to do this. It is a very public thing. So that the people, the nation, you have thousands of new believers. And now they can say, okay, these guys, these seven, have been acknowledged by the leadership so they're the ones that we go to. So it's just this, this transference of authority kind of thing that was very public. And then prayer. Obviously, the apostles want these guys to be successful, and they won't be successful on their own. They need prayer. Um, both of those are so, so important. Um, we don't hear about this being a problem after this chapter. So either they fixed it, or Luke just left that out. I'm going to assume they fixed it. And then we end up with one last verse at the very end, which is verse 7. This is the only follow-up report that we get from Luke, Dr. Luke. He says, So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Um, now, my, my version starts out with the word so. Your version may start out with the word and, right? What do, you, do you guys have your Bibles there, your apps opened up? Um, you might have so or you might have and. They're really cool words. It's basically, it's a connector. And it, it's meant to take us back to, because of what just happened, these things are taking place. And then they don't seem connected. Because this group appointed seven people to take care of widows, a bunch of priests were faithful to follow Jesus. Like, what? How is that connected? But that is a connection. Because the church took care of its own, because the church recognized where it was lacking, the people in leadership focused on their calling, the people of the, of the first church were given authority to lead and to carry out ministry, and because they were depending upon the Holy Spirit, three things took place. The word of God spread. The apostles were focused on the ministry of the word, and the word of God kept spreading. The disciples continued to multiply, more and more and more disciples. We don't know what that number is. Remember, Luke's using fuzzy numbers, and that's wonderful. It just kept growing. And a large group of priests came to follow Jesus. When you're teaching the word, those that study the word, we're getting the connection of, yes, we've studied the scriptures, we've studied the Torah. These guys are saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, and as we study the word, we see that it is. A connection. And I believe that was very significant in those priests coming to follow Jesus. I think it was also part of the community. If you were a priest, you were one of the ones who helped distribute food to the widows in the temple. Now all of a sudden there's this other group that's going above and beyond. They're still giving to the temple because they're Jews. And that's what you do. But on top of that, they're taking up offerings and they're giving even more. And I want to encourage you this way. A caring community is an attractive witness. If you don't care for each other, Nobody's going to care to join what you're a part of. But when they see that you genuinely care and love, that you genuinely put others ahead of yourselves, it's attractive. And people want to be a part of that. They want to know what's the difference. And the answer isn't us. The answer is Jesus. By whose name have you done these things? Not our own name, but in the name of Jesus. He's the one that becomes attractive. The priest following Jesus, by the way, 
when Peter and, and John were preaching, the, the Sadducees came together and they formed the Sanhedrin and they told those guys, don't preach, right? Stop preaching, stop teaching, or they whipped them, they put them in jail, they did some things. If any group would, would face the wrath of the Sanhedrin for following Jesus, it would be the priests. Now you have those that were in leadership in the temple all of a sudden following Jesus, not just this group of Galileans that weren't educated in the, in the Torah. Now you have a group of people educated in the Torah that are following Jesus. And, the, and it's, wow, what a, an amazing thing that they would do that. Um, I love it because it reminds me a lot to lump people into stereotypes. Um, what do I mean by that? It's easy to believe that certain people would never believe in God because they're part of this group or part of that group. And yet here are these scribes, or these priests, excuse me. It was part of the priesthood that put Jesus on the cross. Be really easy to think that none of the priests would come to Jesus, but we're told here that a large group of priests started following Jesus. And we need to remember that the grace of God is bigger than any man-made construct that we try to fit people into. Stereotypes do not keep God from working. So we should always be faithful to share. So it appears as though the first church passed the test when facing a major internal conflict. There's no such thing as a perfect church. And the closest thing to a perfect church is, is really a church where all of its members are using their gifts to meet the needs of people around them for the benefit of God's kingdom. And though most churches try to meet the needs of their congregations, there'll always be needs that go unmet, that inadvertently get overlooked or missed. I can tell you right now as an elder, and I know David feels the same way, we really want to help meet the needs of, of everybody at NCF, but we miss, we, we don't always hit. <laughs> Sometimes we just don't even know. I remember one time somebody said to me, um, they hadn't been around for a while and I asked them how they were doing and they said, well, I've been in the hospital. Didn't you know? I'm like, well, no, you didn't tell me. Well, I posted it on Facebook. I have news for you. Your elders are not spending all day long on Facebook keeping up with you. I was kind of mad and then kind of sad because there's someone I could have been praying for that I didn't even know had an issue because the expectation was that I'd be following them on Facebook and we know everything going on in their lives. It's like sometimes we're the last ones to know. Sometimes there's problems that we don't have any clue about, but the goal should be to meet them together as a congregation and to have everybody serving in a way that meets the needs of others. That means we all need to be sure, make sure that we are ready to serve where there are needs, that we all need to make sure that we are being, living and working toward a, a lifestyle that's of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So let me ask you, where might you fit in? Where might you fit in? If, if a healthy church is not a perfect church, but a church where everybody's doing something with what God has given them, where might you fit in. And that's what I want to leave you with to pray today about. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are um, a good God, that you don't expect us to be perfect because only you are perfect, that we understand that we will never be fully holy until we're with you, but we thank you that we can strive to be holy, to be set apart, to be used for your purposes. And I thank you for this church family Father, for their willingness to, to live for you, for their desire to want to honor you. 
And as we think about this question of where we each fit in, Father, show us, show each one of us the ministry that you have for us, that we can find a way to honor you, to build up your kingdom, to share your word, that we can see your mission accomplished as we yield to your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, David, somebody want to get David out of the back, please? David's going to come and lead us in a time of communion um, as the first Sunday of the month as our practice. Next Sunday, next month, by the way, the first Sunday of December, uh, we're going to plan on doing communion during the music time. So that's from the 10 to 10, um, the 10, sorry, 1030 to 11 slot. So if you uh, want to participate in communion, we'll have the whole family here for that as well so the kids can participate. Um, and that will be uh, the first Monday of, uh, first Sunday, excuse me, of December. We'll plan on doing communion during the music time.